there is an element of this book where I felt almost that I was speaking to a past self, kind of teasing apart moments of being young and deferring to that, the pressure to curate yourself in service of that. Edie, she kind of wishes that she could be this, you know, uncomplicated, sexy detour. It is, is coming from an understanding of her, you know, engaging with a man who was married, a man who's older and has a life. Today I speak with Raven Leilani, author of the New York Times best-selling novel, Luster. Luster is about Edie, a frustrated young painter working a dead-end job in publishing, who meets Eric, a 40-year-old white suburban man in a somewhat open marriage. Edie finds herself involved in his family in the most strange and unconventional ways. And this is how we enter Luster. Raven tells me all about her obsession with painting, how writing is an act of speaking to her past self, and how failure is integral to making art. We also talk about whether Six Flags is a good romantic destination. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgewood, and this is Lit Up. It's such a pleasure to have Raven Leilani on Lit Up, the author of the most masterful, electrifying debut of 2020. Welcome to Lit Up, Raven. Thank you for being here. It's so wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. You know, when I read the book, this title just kept kind of rushing at me when I was reading it, and it was James Joyce's book, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. And I thought, oh my goodness, Raven's written portrait of the artist as a young woman, but then another layer, portrait of an artist as a young black woman. Yeah. And I wondered if you could talk about those extra two layers for you, because Edie, your character, who we'll find out a lot more about, is a painter, but she's, you know, at the beginning of her trying to find her artistic voice in a way. And I read that you were also a painter and you are an exquisite painter. Thank you. And yet you've also chosen writing as a way to kind of purge your creativity. So yeah, I'd love to know about those extra layers for you and if that was something you were thinking about in this book. 100%. I mean, I would say that, you know, there's an element of writing a book, at least for me, where I, when I started, I do not really know what it's going to be, you know, at least until I'm in the middle and, you know, things are actually happening. But I knew that this was going to be about art, uh, you know, if only because I, I tend to always write about art. It, it kind of, I'm obsessed with it and I can't stop writing about it. And that is partly because it was my first love. Like that is the first creative pursuit I ever took up. And so then it was also the the first time I came up against my limits, you know, and what it meant to have a thing you wanted to express and not be able to express it effectively. In my case, it was because I I really struggled uh, with grasping those sort of technical fundamentals of art that you really need to build on. But, you know, I, I never forgot that, that sort of like formative experience of artistic frustration. And I, I like to speak to that when I write. And in writing a character like Edie, who is, you know, a black woman and an aspiring artist, Edie is a person where she is living in a kind of precarity. You know, she can barely make her student loan payments and most of her life is work. And so her journey towards her art is complicated, 
by socioeconomic factors, by race, by gender, which I guess, you know, is that, and by late capitalism. You know, her pursuit of art is complicated by the fact that she's a black woman and, and has to sort of engage in performance to survive. And that performance distorts you. And so I also want to talk about what does it look like to create art from a place of distortion? So I think when you when you write about a black woman who is trying to pursue her art, you automatically begin to engage with the questions of what are the systemic barriers that she's up against that may not be true? Another experience, you know, what does it look like for a black woman to feel she has the right to claim artistry? And what does it look like when you are kind of up against a number of pressurized environments that are sort of aiding your deterioration, which is detrimental to art? So I think there, there, the, I was talking about it now that feels very grim. But I wanted to have the freedom to write bluntly about that, because that was sort of liberating to me, at least to write. It is easy to feel discouraged when that trajectory is untidy. But I think for a lot of people, especially a lot of people of color, that's the case. It's, it's you really, really have to scrap to get there. Definitely. And I also feel that in our kind of in this canon of the artist, there are just so many stories about the male perspective of the promiscuous young man, you know, trying to find his voice. And I think here we have the most complicated and tender black woman experiencing all she does. Yes. And I, I, I didn't know where to find more women like her. I'm kind of on a search now to read more of these experiences. I don't know if there are any other books that inspired you in that way. I did feel like I was writing within a tradition, at least when it came to representing women on the page, of women who have written female characters who are complex, you know, who are dark, who are wanton, and who are full of rage, you know. And I think you can't then talk about that without wading into the sort of discourse about the unlikable woman, which I think in 10 years, maybe unlikable will not be the term. It will instead be, I, I don't know, um, complex. <laughs> It'll only be complex, you know, in the way that men have had the space on the page, right, to be spiky, unlikable, wanton characters. You know, I, I felt really animated by the work of like Otessa Moshfeg or Candace Cardi Williams. Even Toni Morrison, you know, she is really, you know, could I say even because like she is yes. the predecessor, you know, like she she came before really all of us and, and did it in a way that it just has <laughs> incredible mastery. But speaking to the interior lives of women in a way that is um, humane and complex and, and humane because it is complex and allows for contradiction and allows for, you know, allows for rage and, and failure and fallibility. And so I, I definitely feel like there are many women, fictional women, that we hold up as kind of moving the dial forward in that representation of a whole human woman. But for me, I did want to write specifically from that experience of, of Black womanhood. And I'm thinking of maybe someone else who does this in such an exquisite way, and she's a huge advocate of yours, and that's Zadie Smith. That's right. Yeah. I mean, she is just really, truly supreme. You know, yeah. I like white teeth is 
and I think was so important for so many people. And, and that isn't really even the extent of it. You know, her catalog is, is rich and beautiful and complex and funny, you know, and I felt really, really lucky that our paths got to cross. Well, she describes the premise of your book as excruciating. And then she says, as it moves forward, bluster never lets up, ratcheting up readily discomfort, provoking laughter and horror, yet with an unexpected tenderness underlying it all. I was wondering if you could explain this excruciating premise that's at the very crux of the book and how it came to you and how you just knew like this was the beginning, this was going to be this triangle. Absolutely. So, you know, when you meet Edie, she is seeking human connection. You know, she wants to be witnessed, she wants to be touched. And I wanted that to be immediately apparent. And so when you meet her, she's met this older white man online who is in an open marriage. And he he tells her that, you know, so they they see each other under the understanding that this arrangement is okay. So she enters this relationship with this married man. And, you know, the first, the first bit of the book, and and I'll admit, I'm still trying to figure out how to talk about this without spoilers. But I think, you know, this much is known. She enters this relationship with him. And it is subject to the complications that a relationship between a younger 23 year old black woman would be with a white man in his 40s. You know, there's a real power imbalance there. And that is both a thing that is exciting for her, but also extremely complicated. But the bulk of the book really kind of follows what happens after where she becomes a part of their household and and, and develops an almost conspiratorial relationship with his wife, Rebecca, and their adopted child, who is also Black, Akilah. And that was important to me in writing this kind of arrangement that I at least try to subvert the expectation of what, you know, this thing could look like on the page. It was more important to me that each character be afforded room to be whole and complex and contradictory rather than I, I've set this up as like a, you know, a jealous wife, <laughs> you know, who is who has problems with this open marriage, that relationship between Edie and Rebecca, the wife, was really exciting and fun and tricky to write. But in that relationship, I wanted to speak to the immediacy, the urgency of sort of female relationships and what that looks like when you're developing a bond with a woman who is very much outside of your experience. So Rebecca is is white and comfortable and Edie is, I mean, the reason she even joins the household is because she is coming from a moment in her life of extreme precarity. You know, she needs a place to live. And so there are fundamental differences between them socially. And in reconciling that, it makes their relationship a little spikier, a, a little more complicated. And I wanted to be really blunt about those differences, but also make room for the part about, you know, the relations between women that are kind of mystifying and profound and profound almost right away. 
I've never read a book where I've been so surprised by the turns that it takes, but still felt like they were inevitable once I got to them. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was reading this and my boyfriend was in the other room and he was always like, huh, you're really liking this book because I was making all these sounds. Um, and I don't usually make those sounds when I read. Um, I've also written in the margin, wow, so many times in those spots because there are so many turns that took my breath away and yet they're all rendered so perfectly that I just thought, oh, this is the strangeness of real life. Right. I like that. I like the strangeness of real life. You know, I, I really tried my best to get that on the page. You know, like I think the the prose or, you know, the, the story itself is sort of is shot through with a kind of absurdity that is sort of living. <laughs> You know, that is living and especially living as a person who wants deeply. That was important to me. That was sort of what what guided me through was this desire at the center of the book. You know, so then that kind of led me into trying to render these characters in these moments that are bare and naked instead of trying to sort of create neat conclusions around them for the reader. I think there's also such a curiosity between all the female characters in the book about one another and also understanding that you don't have to like another female. Yes. You want to observe and understand or just, you know, even be in their orbit. And I I mean, I think that there is almost... (laughs) And maybe this is the wrong word, but like an eroticism to that friction, you know, like th- there's something more true to me about sort of humans having to reconcile those differences that naturally exist. Like even with Edie and Akila, and, you know, they're both, you know, young black women who are trying to self-actualize and, and find their place in environments where they are inadequately witnessed. They are still very separate human beings who who have moments of friction and disagreement and and that was that was really important to me too what's so fascinating about the book is just how absurd some of these interactions are but in the way that you go yes this is the wackiness that happens in real life and one of them is that Edie and Eric have been messaging online and there's a great line that I think everyone will agree with and that's Waiting a month to meet someone you've met online is too long. Yes. And I remember laughing, being like, oh, you're a goner with this. On a related note, here's the actual question. Uh, why on earth did you choose their first date to be at Six Flags? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I really love Six Flags. <laughs> you know, I, I really love, you know, going to music parks. But I will say that it was it really just sort of functioned as an environment that I, I'm drawn to as a writer, which is an environment that is chaotic, an environment that kind of facilitates a certain amount of speed on the page and in the writing, and also a kind of absurdity, right? Like there's a sort of an elephant in the room between Edie and Eric in these in these early sections, and the elephant is that there's like 20 odd years between them, <laughs> and this this environment is 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 very much invoking that elephant constantly because it is a, it is a place for children. <laughs> you know, I feel like the, the book starts the moment there on the top of that coaster. 
<laughs> and I, I just kind of I wanted to start there. I wanted to start right away and quickly. I love that we see his glee and pure joy. Because going into this book, I didn't like Eric at all. And he's that older, creepy guy who says he's in an open marriage. But is he really in an open marriage? Right. And then you have this man free-falling with such kind of ecstasy in this childlike moment. And I thought, oh, wow, this is how this book's going to be. Right. And, you know, I'm campaigning constantly for for earnestness. (laughs) And I think, you know, there there was a, a... a cynical way to write this and to introduce even this arrangement on the page. But it, it felt more vulnerable and more true to introduce these characters, at least Edie and Eric in this moment, as two characters who really do want this to go well, who, who, who really are looking for, you know, for excitement and acceleration. And I think writing that moment, there's one way to write this and there's another way to write this. and the first way to write that would be that, and I mean, it isn't the best date, right? <laughs> but the first way to write this is that it's horrible all the way through, as opposed to two people on a date trying their best to have a good time and wanting to have a good time. I think the humor, it comes from the understatement around these really hyperbolic situations, hyperbolic situations that are, that are true to life. And also from the dissonance of you being inside Edie's mind and feeling her yearning and her her rage and seeing that up against the exterior where she is studied and like trying so hard. There's a few lines that struck me, particularly just in this section. And one of them is, he looks at me and pretends I'm not just a cheaper version of a fast Italian car. Right. <laughs> I want no friction between his fantasy and the person I actually am. Yes. She's so willing to kind of forgo her own wants in this moment just to try and be perfect for him. That's right. Which I think is what we do as women, especially initially, and then we kind of find our footing. Yes, yes. But it's hard to unlearn that. Very much. And, and I think there is an element of this book where I felt almost that I was speaking to a past self, you know, kind of teasing apart those moments of being young and wanting so bad to, to be loved and touched and deferring to that, the pressure to curate yourself in service of that. She, she kind of wishes that she could be this, you know, uncomplicated, sexy detour is, is coming from an understanding of her you know, engaging with a man who is married, a man who's older and has a life. And I think Gillian Flynn is like the one who really, really depicted this in like the best way possible. That section in Gone Girl, she talks about the cool girl, right? Mm. You know, the idea of wanting to be aloof, right? <laughs> of wanting to be what the man is you're trying to sort of court expects and wants. And, and this, it's actually, I think, almost inextricable from the manic pixie idea, you know, which is that you as a woman exist for the relief and sort of development of the man you're, you're seeing. And, you know, in, in that desire to, Edie does welcome a certain kind of annihilation. She does. But I do think in, in that moment where she wishes that she could be uncomplicated and wishes she could be what Eric wants is an understanding in her 
that she is not that, right? <laughs> that she is not that and actually really cannot be that. And we, I think, at that point already know it because we've spent some time in her mind where she is constantly calculating and, and trying, trying hard. You just reminded me of another quote in the book uh, when he says, you can be yourself with me, you know, and she wants to laugh and then she goes on, which I think is the most incredible image. I know he doesn't mean it. He wants me to be myself like a leopard might be herself in a city zoo, inert, waiting to be fed, not out in the wild, with tendon in her teeth. I mean, what writing. Oh, thank you. But yeah, I mean, I think that is both the function of her being a woman and, and, and her being black, which is to survive. She has had to study. She has had to kind of observe from a distance and, and had to curate herself and had to put on whichever face is most suited to the environment she's in. And She's also then in the business of, of managing the expectations of the people around her. And, and in that moment is her telling you that she hears what he's saying, but she knows better, right? And, and in fact, it turns out that she's right, <laughs> you know, when in fact the ooze is more apparent later on in the book, that is less palatable to him. And right from the beginning, she understands that. When speaking to how women are contorting themselves in this book. When the book opens, Edie um, is the managing editorial coordinator for a children's imprint. And just as a side note, the way you talk about the publishing house and like how they discuss whether, you know, bears are no longer in fashion. Like I really like chuckled along. But she is one of the only black women in the office, but there is another black woman called Aria. And I'm interested because they have a kind of strangely antagonistic relationship yeah. because they navigate the space differently. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, why you chose to have these two characters kind of side by side and yet they have this beautifully honest conversation when Edie's leaving. Sure. Yeah. So they're both trying to survive in their environment. They, they just have very different tactics of going about it. You know, like both are entirely human responses. Aria has sort of leaned into the hyper curation that is really truly demanded of women and black women in these spaces. And Edie, you know, I would say that she couldn't do it if, even if she tried, but she has very much leaned away from that. And and decided that she will take no part in that. And that hasn't, that really truly hasn't gotten her very far. In fact, it, you know, <laughs> it, it, it does um, create some problems for her later on in the book. But I would say, you know, that that moment is important because you do see two black women in an environment that is kind of flattening them both. You know, like speaking to publishing specifically where, you know, Edie goes down to, the lobby and she sees the diversity giveaway and then she sees the stories that are there and the stories are stories that are being told by people who are still outside the experience of the people they're writing about or stories that are that are flattened to sort of fit a particular market there's an element of working in an environment that that purports to hold up diversity uh, and inclusion there's an aspect of that kind of lip service that is almost absurd in practice. And I think that has great bearing on 
these two professional black women who are trying to climb, you know, they're, they're trying to make their way up and they see each other. Like they're both hungry and they, they're both scrapping, but because they, they have different methods of going about it, that still does, you know, impede the connection that they're both looking for. Uh, and that, that was also kind of a complicated thing to write. Thinking about the workplaces that you examine in this book, they're highly um, unusual and probably, I mean, the publishing world less so to so many readers who will come to the book. But I was fascinated why you chose the professions of both Rebecca, the wife in the book, and then Eric, you know, the third in this triangle. Oh, t- totally. And and this one is actually, I, I would say, I drew from my life. I, I've worked actually a lot of the jobs in this book, I've, I've worked myself, with the exception of Rebecca's job. So with, with Eric, he's an archivist. And I worked as an archivist for, for a long time. I worked with census records and death certificates, which is kind of gnarly work because you kind of like you're constantly seeing causes of death, you know, as you're working through. So how did you fall into that job? In college, when I was an undergrad, I needed a job really bad, you know, and it just so happened there was an opening in our college archive. And so I just had, I had real job experience as opposed to going to school for it. Like I just started working like my sophomore year of college. I started working with them, like glass plate negatives and, and kind of flaked film. And I learned how to handle those really delicate material. And after, you know, when I was graduating, um, it was 2012. It was kind of a rough time to be looking for a job. But because I had actual work experience from my work in college, that was the first job that gave me a shot and I took it because I needed it. (laughs) And so I'm very familiar with the work and I feel very at home in the library. You know, the smell just kind of brings me back and makes me feel really uh, centered. But, you know, I gave that job to Eric, one, because I knew that job, but also because this book is, it's a book about record keeping because it's a book about art. But with Rebecca's job, which also I drew from my life, my, my mom had that job. She was a medical examiner. When I was in uh, high school, she went back to school for mortuary science. And initially she wanted to do like the more kind of cosmetic side of it. You know, she was very, very invested in how a person is uh, cared for in death, specifically black people. She wanted to be able to send off black people with, I, I don't know how to explain it. You know, she, she went, she took these classes where she would learn about how to help families who are grieving, how to do, how to reconstruct a face. You know, she came home once with a ball of wax and had to make a, a head out of it, you know? What a, what an unusual transformation to witness in a parent. That interest. Oh my gosh. I was so proud of her. Like I, it was just, it was the coolest thing to see because she had been a seamstress before that and then worked as a you know a caretaker and and I'd say the seamstress actually really (laughs) came in handy when she started working with cadavers because she started working in the VA my dad was a veteran because you know she couldn't find work at the the funeral parlors where she would do sort of cosmetic work because those tend to be family owned and they're hard to break in especially if you lived in a small town like like we did and so she started working on sort of the medical side where she would get a call that a veteran had come in and she w- it would always be late at night. <laughs> and she would go off and do the work of taking out all of the, you know, the organs and the parts of the body that decompose before the body is, is sort of made up 
and prepared to be seen. So she did that sort of more invisible part. And it was beautiful. I, I saw her work once, right before I went to college. I went to see her. It was late at night, <laughs> like it always was when she worked. And I put on my hazmat suit. And she put on hers. I watched her work. And it was really tender, meticulous work. And she's like, she's a small woman, you know, she's barely five foot, <laughs> you know? So it, it was really, really hard work and it just felt miraculous. So that, that's one part of why I did it. Also, Rebecca, as a character, that seemed to fit with her. You know, she's a person who likes to know how things work. She's a person who is in control and, and likes to take things apart, in fact, to see how they work. And because this book is about art, I thought it would be a nice way to kind of dovetail the traditional study of, of anatomy with Rebecca's job and in Edie's practice. Goodness, I am just wrapped by this. <laughs> My mind is flashing back to a very intimate scene, uh, a surprising scene in the book that does take place in that environment. And I'm just thinking of how extraordinary this is, like how Rebecca sees that nothing inside your body can hide how you've lived your life. Yes, yes. And that, that, that also is record keeping, right? You know, like, like Eric's archival work. And that was really what struck me when I saw my mom work because she would like, I hope this is like so super graphic, but, you know, she would literally hold up an organ, you know, a liver or something like that and pull back, uh, you know, a layer of skin when she was doing her incisions. And she would say, you can tell that this person smoked, you know, like the body keeps a record. And that is, I mean, that's, that's, that itself, I think, is miraculous. And it's, it made a huge impression on me. Oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> the way um, Edie in the book is because she's working on her painting and she hasn't been able to paint in a few years and yet she starts to flex that muscle again. And yeah. she is examining certain objects people and painting them how it seems like it's some almost a healing process for Edie in the book 100 percent um you know I, I did think it was important that when you meet her she is you know it, it is after a moment like about a couple years since she's painted which I think for a lot of people who are making anything at all is that's that's a real defining moment like the moment you start after a long drought and I wanted to speak to the, the difficulty of that you know the, the the kind of way that it almost has to be an act of fate to jump back in but in in writing about Edie's painting the thing she's trying to do throughout the book is she's trying to she is trying to, to paint a self-portrait you know and she can't for most of the book she she can't and that was just another way of of talking about what it looks like when a person is aspiring to make art, but also is contending with, you know, the necessity of performance to survive. So like the fact that she cannot put her face down on the canvas is, is a function of her difficulty in seeing herself because of these performances that she absolutely kind of has to engage in, but also the idea of, of it being a process of failure being integral to any any art making process. You watch her grapple with her tools and with her craft and you watch her fail over and over again. But you kind of in, you, incrementally you watch her sort of start to move toward realizing 
her own capability. And I wanted to speak to that as a process as opposed to, you know, and then she, <laughs> and then she made the painting and it was great, you know, and then she, you know, achieved her dream and it was, and it was done because it is, I think, to speak to the part of, of making art that is a constant grappling with your limits is just to, is to embrace a certain amount of freedom in, in what that should look like. I also hadn't kind of picked out this idea before listening to what you've just said so beautifully, but it makes me think that the women in the book, so we think of Rebecca, Edie, and then Akila, Rebecca and Eric's 13-year-old adopted black daughter. I was just thinking that it's the women who actually, even if they don't like one another, they're supporting each other's creativity. Yes. And they see a want in each other that's worth nourishing. And I think even in Rebecca's way, she might not, you know, be comfortable all the time with what is going on in her household, yet she nudges Edie towards painting, you know, and brings her into her world for a moment. But similarly, Edie is also encouraging a killer to write and yes yes there's some huge acknowledgement when she sees Edie for the first time at this party because she lives in this whitewashed space and there's almost this moment of recognition and interest that I just found beautiful and interesting right I I mean I think when they when they meet at the party, when Edie and um, Akilah meet at the party, that's the first moment you kind of see her step outside of herself and see another kind of young black woman. Like when when Akilah says there are no black people in this neighborhood, Edie immediately understands what that means, you know, because she herself is quite isolated and seeking connection. And I think that she she sees that and sees herself in in Akilah and, and wants to you know, provide relief and, and, and nourishment to her. Like I, it's, I love that you noticed that she, you know, like she reads her fan fiction. She shouldn't have read, right. (laughs) She goes and she snoops and she finds a fan fiction and it's horribly embarrassing for both of them. But then she encourages her, right. Cause there's something there. And I think she encourages her because this is what she's looking for. She's looking for affirmation, you know, of her seriousness and, in fact, Rebecca takes her up on that. You know, Rebecca is in the within the book one of the first people you see actually take her up on that and actually engage with some rigor in the craft. And, and you know, before Edie is doing what I think many of us have done. You know, she she is looking to the men she's engaged with for for affirmation of her personhood. You know, of her value and of her art. And when she meets Rebecca, who is herself a serious woman who does serious work, that dynamic changes. She meets a woman who challenges her and pushes her and really treats her work seriously. And, and that, that absolutely was not a mistake because in my own life, I, I do think it has been women who have really lifted me up, you know? That's beautiful. 
I know we're nearly out of time, but I want to hit upon one of the most incredible passages in the book, and I'll read just a part of it. Uh, So Edie is having a realization, and in the book it's written, He's the most obvious thing that has ever happened to me, and all around the city it has happened to other silly, half-formed women, excited by a man who simply supplied the prerequisite of living a little more life, a terribly unspecial thing. It is a most remarkable passage. Uh, I think we all kind of shudder with the acknowledgement of that. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but then the part that made me laugh was, I let myself be awed by his middling command of the wine list. I mean, haven't we all <laughs> been there? <laughs> yes, right? I mean, that, I mean, I will say that was really, really fun to write. And, in, and again, I think that was absolutely one of those moments where I was like, speaking to a, almost a past version of myself, you know, like it, it's, it's almost a kind of <laughs> like a wish fulfillment to have a 23 year old have a, a revelation like that on the page so soon, you know? And I think in that moment, it was important for me for her to have that almost come to Jesus moment. And I don't actually think that those moments happen neatly, you know, they, they happen after like a, a process like a a real kind of jagged path of infatuation and in fact I think maybe sometimes this moment never comes but in that moment you kind of you see her feeling what I think so many of us have felt which is that she has made a almost a god of, of this human man and is having to reconcile the fact of his apparent fallibility and humanity with the pedestal <laughs> that she has that she has had him on or, or the idea that his experiences are perhaps even more valuable than her own lived experiences there is value in in, in what she has had to grapple with I mean, there's value in her journey toward her art the hard lessons she's learned you know the the sort of measly 23 years she spent on earth She's looking to, you know, for other people. She's looking to other people, often men, for affirmation of this seriousness. But she is living a serious life. And I think in that moment, she realizes that, you know, the value of her own experience and that she has prioritized the experience of a person who is is just as fallible, you know, is <laughs> is just as human. I feel like that's the kind of passage that you press into another woman's hand and say, "Incredible, (laughs) you know, please read this. I mean, obviously things we read have such a huge impact on us, but I know that when we're young, particularly in our early 20s, like not much other people can say can change our kind of trajectory often, but potentially this could even just as a subtle reminder that, yeah, when you're that young, you are just as important. Yes. Yes. Oh, my gosh, Raven. I know. So that we just have to say we've been careful because the book does have so many um, surprises in it, and I think it's so precious to allow people to experience them in the reading. So it would be fascinating to see if 
people listen to this and then think, but you didn't talk about that or you didn't talk about that. <laughs> but I'm sorry, this is what we did talk about. But it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Raven Leilani. You can buy her book on our website, lituppodcast.com. Please follow along on social at Lit Up Show on Instagram and Twitter and rate and review us and share this episode with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. This week's episode was edited by Rebecca Seidel. The theme music is by Andre Rudofsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time, bye everyone. Bye.